Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace be abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, First Prayers, and God bless you. Thank you for being with us today in worship. And uh, today is the third Sunday after Pentecost, and we want to keep saying that because the coming of the Holy Spirit was such a, a seminal event for the, the church, both in Israel, but also the church around the world. But today is also Father's Day, and as a father speaking to fathers, I want to wish you a, a blessed and a happy Father's Day to you, and may you just know God's rich blessing on your life today. I want to begin by sharing with you some words that God just laid on my heart from the book of Romans. I remember when I first moved to Chicago, and it's now been ten and a half years ago when we first moved here. We lived in an apartment, a wonderful apartment that was near the corner of Lake and, and Maple Avenue. And we just loved it. We loved where we were living. It was just around the corner from the church. So you can imagine, I had the freedom to walk back and forth to work for many weeks, many, many months. The, the proximity of everything. I could walk to the store. I could walk downtown. I could walk to the movie theater. Uh, we loved walking by the lake. And we just loved the location and really wanted to figure out how to stay in a, in a similar location, even after we moved out of the apartment. But eventually, we did find a house. It wasn't exactly where we wanted it to be, and so we had to move from the apartment. But in the early days after moving, a weird thing kept happening. 
So after a day of working here at the church, I would get into my car and would start driving home. And instead of driving to my new address, I somehow absentmindedly found myself driving to the old address. And I knew up here that I was no longer living at the old address, but my habits, the force of my habits kept me, kept me going back. It, it took me a while, it took us a while to go from the old to the new. And I am wondering this morning, has this ever happened to you before? Have you ever struggled to adapt to a new mindset, to a new behavior, to a new pattern of living? And I have a feeling I know the answer because since you are human just as I am, I know that you have struggled with that. And in reading Romans, I think this is what it feels like. Because Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he announced that death is defeated and there is now new life in Christ. There's a new address, there's a new home. And Jesus sealed that announcement by sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to impart to every believer new and dynamic spiritual power so that they would continually live in that new home, that new life, in that new address. But here's the rub. For people like me and like you, we find ourselves going back and back to that old way of life, to that old address, to that place where we used to live. And so what I'd like to do through the months of June and into July, I want to explore this old and new life through the writings of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I want to invite you to join me in reading through all 16 chapters of Paul's longest letter in all of the New Testament, the letter to the Romans. And the reason why I want you to do that with me, it's not because you're going to find the reading of Romans easy. You're going to find it very difficult. But the reason why I want you to join me in reading Romans, it's because I know that God has something in this book for you. And I want you to be blessed. And I want you to be strengthened. And I want for the Word of God to become and to find a place in your home and in your life and in your family. So I want you to read this letter. Because one of the things I want you to notice is that Paul explores how the gospel creates a community of worshipers from Jews and Gentiles who are united in the Messiah. And I just love the thought of that. I love the resonance of that. I love the hope, this vision, this view of Jew and Gentile be, being united together in the gospel forming this unified community as they worshiped the Messiah. But before we really get into that and talk about this new life, I want you to explore with me what I call the elephant, and I'll call it the elephant in the chancel because that's where I'm standing this morning. Because I think today's reading raises some big problems for 21st century readers like ourselves. And if I could summarize one of the concerns, it would be this. Is there, is there really a metaphysical reality called sin? That's one of the elephants that we're going to have to deal with as we read this, this text. The second elephant in the room that we want to consider then is how do we build a bridge from the world of the Bible 
and its use of the word sin to our world, our 21st century world, and our propensity to deny or even have problems with the word sin. I mean, that's another big problem. And let me put your mind at ease. I am not interested in talking about sin as behavior. Of course, there are days when we will talk about that, and it's important to talk about sin as behavior, but that's not the point that Paul wants us to get into. And so there will come other times when we could talk about why is it that we tell lies? Why do we steal? Why are we impatient? Why are we greedy? Why do we sin behaviorally? And, and that's for another day. That's what we call the fruit of sin. Paul wants us to go to the root. And so I'm thinking about, and I think that's what Paul wants us to think about, the reign and the dominion of sin, the power of sin, the captivity of sin, the enslavement of sin. So we live in a, in a secular culture where the word sin then is considered a social construct. I mean, let's, let's just own that. And people say that the word sin and all the attending uh, practices related to that word that's all created by what some call the morality police as they try to control others, as they try to, to, to create this framework into which they want everyone to live and to think the way they think. In a secular culture, people say, to worry about sin then is a sign of a weak conscience. I love what the preacher Barbara Brown Taylor writes she says, when words like sin are pronounced out loud, many of them sound like language from an earlier age when human relationship with God was laced with blame and threat. And to a certain degree, she might be right. As one writer said, sin has fallen on hard times. The word sounds too old-fashioned. But Reinhold Niebuhr comes back to us with a, a correcting thought. He famously said that the doctrine of original sin is the most empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And so abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. I love the story of the prodigal son. And you know the story very well in Luke chapter 15, before the prodigal was welcomed home. The Bible tells us that the prodigal came to his senses and he recognized, this is what he said, that he had sinned against his father. And so the prodigal created this very soul-searching, this very honest confession that he had prepared to share with his father. So he left one way of life for another. That's what he was doing. He was ready to do penance when he arrived home. And as he was making his way up to the home, the Bible tells us that the father comes running out to this wayward son, and instead of chiding him, the father hugs him, the father kisses him, and that kiss and the placing of the ring upon the son's hand erased all the guilt and the shame and the sin that the son knew that he had committed. The father saw the son not as a sinner anymore, but in the eyes of the father, the son was innocent. The son, he and himself knew he was guilty. But the kiss of the father and the ring from the father was the kiss of forgiveness and grace and mercy. When we think about Jesus and his death on the cross, 
I think Jesus' death on the cross was Jesus' kiss to us from the cross. And so if you and I remain unaware of our collusion with the forces of death that put him on the cross, then it will be very difficult for us to receive Jesus' absolution, Jesus' forgiveness with his stunning offer of a new life. And it's the, truth, it's the same for the son. If the son remained unaware of how his behavior had impacted his father, he would have gone back home to his father, not with a penitent spirit, not with an awareness of his sin, but almost with a, with a feeling of pride. And we don't need that today. So Paul is interested then, my brothers and sisters, in helping the church find the path to their new address, the path to freedom from sin's slavery. And he does it by placing all of humanity between these two massive figures, between Adam and between Jesus Christ. And if you look at Romans chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, Paul represents Adam as the head of a realm of sin and death and condemnation. On the other hand, Paul represents Jesus as the head of a new humanity because of Jesus' obedience and Jesus' life and his grace and his righteousness. So there it is for you in Romans 5. And we didn't read this, but I want to read it for you because what Paul does, he develops this map and he shows where people stand in relation to Adam and to Christ. And here's what he says. Therefore, just as one's man, one man's trespass, and who is that man? Let's just be clear again. It's Adam. One man's trespass led to what? It led to condemnation for all. So one man's act of righteousness, and who is that man of righteousness? Of course, it's Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. For just as one man's disobedience, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20 says, but law came in with the result that trespasses multiplied, but where sin increased, grace superabounded, grace abounded all the more. So again, what is Paul doing? Paul is placing you and me and all of humanity between two figures, Adam and Christ, the old address and the new address. And on the map, Paul wants to help us to understand this is where you are. And if you've ever been to the mall, someday when we're back to some level of uh, normalcy, some of us will go back to the mall. And if you're not sure where that store is, you're going to go up to a, a map of the mall and you're going to see a red dot. And, the map, and that little dot will say, this is where you are. And when you understand where you are, then you can figure out where you need to go. And I think that's what Paul is doing. Paul wants us to mark out where we sit in relationship to the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Exactly whose jurisdiction are we under? The map helps us to figure that out. To whom do we belong? The map helps us to figure that out. And we will never understand, my friends, and I want you to hear me on this, we will never understand the power of sin's dominance on our lives until 
we locate ourselves on this map. And so I think what follows then in chapter 6 is a response to what Paul said in chapter 5 and verse 20, where Paul says in 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then the question comes in chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul asks this super essential question that's on everybody's mind. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not, by no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? In other words, does God's amazing grace mean that we're free to just keep going back to that old address to indulge in sin so that our sinning actually helps increase grace? And there are people in Paul's time and in our time, we call them libertines, we call them, you know, from which we get the word liberalism, we call them antinomians. These are people who wanted to live free, without laws, without restrictions. And Paul says, listen, that is absurd. So imagine, you are walking along in this beautiful meadow and you didn't see it coming. You stepped into this open spot in the ground. You fell into the bottom of a muddy well and you're screaming your head off for help and you're stuck in the mud way up to your chest. You can't get out. You need help. Nobody seems to be coming. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you look up and there is someone lowering this rope to pull you out. And the question would be, would you want to stay in that condition and say, oh, no, thank you, no, thank you, I don't need the rope? I'm telling you, most of us, if, if not all of us, would say, absolutely not, I want out. I want freedom. And you would grab hold of that rope as your rescuer pulls you out. And in a sense, and maybe even in a greater sense, God, through Jesus, our Messiah, he didn't just lower a rope. He actually came down into the condition in which we found ourselves, and by his grace, he lifted us up out of that condition. And the image that Paul uses to describe God's saving work is like that rope that comes down to you into that well and lifts you out. And the image that Paul wants us to see is the sign of baptism. He wants us to understand that we didn't do it. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't get ourselves out of the predicament we were in. It was God's grace. It wasn't earned. It was all freely given at the cost of Jesus' life. And so the moment you become a follower of Jesus, a follower of the Messiah, and I pray that you will, you are no longer under the reign and the rule of sin's power and control. The minute you leave sinland, you enter freedom land, and Jesus is there with you. So the question then is, how then does baptism, the sign of baptism, help us understand the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ? Well, if you look at chapter 6 and verse 3, notice what Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into, watch this now, into his death? And so you say, well, why, why would, uh, would Paul compare 
baptism to death. And I went back and I looked at Mark chapter 10 and verse 38 and I read the story of the mother of the two sons of James and John and she wanted so much for her sons to be promoted in Jesus's empire what she thought was his empire, his kingdom. And she says, Jesus, when you come into your own, when you come into your kingdom, would you, would you allow my son to sit one on your left and one on your right? And Jesus' response to her just tells it all. He, he asked her two questions. He says, listen, mother, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And as you know, that's the cup of suffering. And that rhetorical question, the answer would be no. And then the second question he asks rhetorically, are, or are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And right here, Jesus was referring to his death. Baptism is the sign and the seal that believers have died and entered into the very life and the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so to believe in Jesus is to be united with Christ's life and death. And the mark of our belief, the mark that we're followers of Jesus is to be baptized. And I was just thinking to myself as I'm saying this, that if you're here this morning and you have put your trust in Jesus, but you've never followed him into the waters of baptism, I will be, I'll, in a heartbeat, I will go with you down to the lake and we'll do it. We'll gather our church and we'll be socially distanced and we will baptize you. Or if you want to come here to the church, I will baptize you because the beauty of baptism is that it signifies that we have entered into the very death of Jesus. And it signifies that we are now dead to the old way of life. Here's, here's the verse that I find very helpful from the earliest days of my Christianity and my relationship to Jesus. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. There's that death. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And baptism just illustrates that wonderfully. As I was preparing my words for you this morning, I thought about this incident that happened at our house last fall. I'm standing in the front room looking out on the lawn and I notice in the fall, it was kind of raining, it was wet, it was cold. And I noticed the squirrel was just sitting there on the lawn. And I think I might have even walked away. Maybe an hour later, I came back and the squirrel was sitting still in that very same spot. And I called Judith and I said, look at this. Why is that squirrel just sitting there on our lawn? And I opened the front door. And normally when I open the front door, if there's a rabbit or a squirrel somewhere near the front, it just takes off running. Well, this squirrel didn't move. So I opened the front door and I walked out, took a few steps out and I stepped on the edge of the lawn and the squirrel still didn't move. And I went a little closer and then it dawned on me. I knew something was wrong. I knew the reason why this squirrel didn't run. It didn't move. It's because the poor thing was dead. It was unresponsive. I know that's a weird way to talk about this, but Jesus wants us to understand that when you are united with Christ by faith and he is your Lord and you're following him as your Messiah, you are now dead to the world you used to live in. And you're now alive in this new world. You're dead to sin. You're dead to the reign of sin. In fact, Paul says it in chapter 6 and verse 7, whoever is dead is freed from sin's power. And I know, I know, the minute I say that whoever is dead is freed from sin's power, 
you're saying, well, Pastor Ray, maybe I somehow missed that because I'm still struggling. Yes, and I want you to understand that. What I want you to understand, and this is so important that you understand it, yes, to be dead to sin means we're no longer under the control and the power and the dominion of sin. It doesn't mean we still won't struggle with sin. But here's what happened as you struggle, and I want to use the word struggle, because prior to you being dead to sin, when you were alive in sin and you were dead to the righteousness of God, you had no problems. You didn't feel any guilt with many of the things that you did in your life. That was a sign that you were dead in, you were dead in sin and cut off from the life of God. But now that Jesus, by his grace, has put you in a new place, yes, you are dead, but you will still struggle. I know I still struggle with a variety of sins in my life. So baptism signifies death and burial. But Paul says in verse 9 that baptism also signifies resurrection to a new life in Christ. So if you look at verse 9, he says, We know, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. And in light of this life in the resurrected Christ, Paul says in verse 11, so you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so as Christ is, so are we. We must receive that by faith this morning, that you are not defeated, you are not dead. The hope that God has for you in Jesus is not lost. Christ in you is the hope of glory he who began a good work in you is going to stay faithful. He's going to continue to transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that increasingly with each passing day, we're becoming more and more like him. And it's because of his resurrected life as Christ is, so are we. We're part of a new reality of life and righteousness, not, not the old dominion of sin and death, and I love the way the fifth century bishop, Bishop Chrysostom, says it. He says in one of his sermons, only let us go, leave the strange and foreign land, for this is what sin is, drawing us away from our father's house. Let us leave her then, that we may speedily return to the house of our father. And it's Jesus. It's the Messiah who helps us to leave. He gives us the legs, he gives us the breath, he gives us the desire, he gives us the map, he gives us the way, the truth, the life, so that we can go to that new house, the house of our fathers. And I think this is what it means for us to start living in the new address, that we don't belong in the land of sin anymore. So we're gonna burn the passport from that land we're going to renounce citizenship in that land. We're going to forsake the language of that land. And instead, we're going to acquire new citizenship. And we have acquired new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and with our risen Lord. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's a news, it's a news that involves the announcing of freedom from the prison of sin. So here is that last elephant in the room that I want you to think with me about then, is how do we apply? How do we take that land and that truth from the land of Scripture, the world of Scripture, and build a bridge to the 21st century? And there's so many ways we could go with this, right? So I'm just going to pick one. I'm just going to pick one. Let's just build one bridge in this direction because we're living in some very challenging times here in our country. 
we're living in situations around the world, and it's not just in this country, but around the world, where people are being mistreated because of who they are. We are looking at people, and, and I've been asking you to do this with me, to stop seeing each other only as racial constructs. Because I've said to you that what that eventually does, depending on where you, on, you are on the power continuum, you might begin to see other people as beneath you if you're not careful. And we fall prey to the lie that some people are better than others because of their race. So, when you think about the conflicts historically that have happened between Japanese and Koreans, between Indians and Pakistanis, between Muslims and Hindus, between Jews and Gentiles, between Africans and Caucasians, you can quickly tell that part of the reason why this is happening, it's because we still live in the land of sin. And in the land of sin, we don't see people the way God created them. We see them as people to be exploited instead of people to love. Sin blinds us from seeing people the way God wants us to see them. And we so disregard people because of our racial standing. But when you are under the reign of Christ now, when your eyes have been opened, when you've gotten new citizenship, new language, new vision, and you, you have new life in Christ, suddenly you no longer see people in those superficial ways, in those external ways, but you begin to see people as made in the image of God and under the reign of Christ, then we are able to love our enemies. We're able to bless those who persecute us. We're able to bless those who say all manner of evil against us because we're now living under the reign of Christ. Under the reign of Christ, we find pleasure in living our lives for the glory of God and living by the glory of God. We begin to discover what God wants us to do. So I want to close with this one question to you. Would you be free from the burden of sin? And that's a line from that old American hymn. Would you be free from the burden? Because that's what sin is. It's a burden that you can't lift off. You've tried in your own power to be free. You've tried to find joy. You've tried to find peace. You've tried to find satisfaction. You've tried to find purpose for your life. And it is still not working. Well, I want to invite you to come to Christ. Come to the Messiah. He died for you, he was raised for you, and he wants to give you a new home, a new home. And I invite you to come to him today, today. At the close of this service, you will have an opportunity to receive prayer. We actually have a prayer room set up on Zoom where you can go and meet with someone today and receive prayer. Come to Jesus today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's children say, Amen. Amen.